As we've moved into fall, Hartman's Golden Age products have been working overtime to bring you the newest in old fashion. That's right, gentlemen, the company that brought you Hartman's hair cream, hair tonic, and aftershave. The same Hartman's that teamed with One Round Jack to bring you an old-fashioned pomade. Well, now they've been working in conjunction with Jacob Evans of the Let's Talk Pomade podcast to bring you Hartman's Clay Pomade. We're talking all-natural, organic ingredients. Bentonite clay, coconut oil, shea butter, olive oil, natural beeswax, and just a touch of fragrance. So if you're tired of looking like a wet mop, or ladies, if you want your man to stand out, go to thehartmancompany.com and place your order. That's thehartmancompany.com. And if you put in the code word gangster, they'll give you an additional 10% off your order. There were no bold jokes in the writing of this commercial. Warning, the show is intended for mature audiences. Parental discretion is advised. Welcome to the History of Organized Crime. I'm your host, Michael Vista. This episode, Prohibition. Products, Provinces, Paisons, and Partitions. At midnight of January 17, 1920, pro-prohibitionists held massive parties to celebrate the start of a dry country in the United States. A few looser ones even celebrated with champagne. Mostly, these were dry affairs, with food, prayer vigils, and a sense of back-slapping righteousness. Some of these shindigs were held in churches, mostly through the God-fearing South and Midwest. They weren't the only ones partying that night, either. Other revelers through the country raised a glass filled with beer, whiskey, gin, and other intoxicants. Most just did it to symbolically thumb their noses at these pointy-headed do-gooders, who thought that government might made right in a country that was based on liberty. Some, though, raised a glass at the new business opportunities that arrived with such a short-sighted law that was doomed to failure. I mean, what was the government going to do? Lock all of them up? Please. Even the country's more than 1,300 breweries knew that prohibition wouldn't last. They just needed to find a way to survive until the law was repealed. Adolphus Coors had the foresight, well before the ban on alcohol, to start utilizing the clay in and around Golden, Colorado to start producing ceramics. In fact, Coors Tech Ceramic is more profitable for the company today than their beer. Yingling converted their shop into an ice cream and dairy manufacturer. They operated this way until 1985 and restarted the manufacturing of the Tasty Treats in 2014. Pabst Blue Ribbon became one of the northern Midwest premium cheesemakers. Anheuser-Busch, like Yingling, made ice cream, non-alcoholic beer, soft drinks, and was Missouri's number one cold truck delivery company. Some of the others, such as F.M. Schaefer Brewing, Lions Brewery, and Noyan's Liquors, turned to dye manufacturing, which was a premium alternative, especially in the aftermath of World War I and the inability to garner dyes. One of the funniest issues concerning this was during Prohibition. Several defunct dye plants were turned into alcohol stills, which would operate at night so as to avoid getting caught. Several throughout the country, but particularly in New Jersey and New York, got raided by the government and dismantled. However, of all the wily ways in which brewers survived and skirted the law was the manufacturing of malt extract. These manufacturers included the aforementioned Pabst Company, Schlitz, Miller, and Blatz. 
Now, what is malt extract? It is a combination of malt, yeast, and barley required to make beer. Just add it to a sterilized pot with boiling water and a little sugar. However, the instructions gave recipes for making bread, a woman's relaxation tonic, and desserts. And it isn't like this was a brand new product, but it was a barely used product of the day, until Prohibition. One newspaper account in Lima, Ohio put it in these words. Local distributors of malt syrup reported that an average of approximately 8,000 cans of malt extract are sold in this city every week. The contents of each can will make at least 50 pints of bottled beer. Thus, the weekly consumption of malt in Lima has the average equivalent of 400,000 pints of homebrew. It went on to point out that enough malt extract is sold each week in Lima to provide the necessary sweetening for 800,000 loaves of bread or more than 16 loaves for every man, woman, and child. I don't know why the American breweries were trying to stay in business. Why do I say that? We find your American beer is a little like making love in a canoe. It's fucking close to water. So many of these breweries found a way to skirt the law or to stay in business until the government got sensible. Regardless, Prohibition and its enforcement arm, the Volstead Act, were the law of the land, and almost nobody gave a damn. Of those who liked the law, who weren't for the dry cause, were those who planned on profiting from the illegal sale and distribution of booze, and many of them were involved with gangs. Now, of the two major Italian-based factions, the Sicilian Mafia and the Campanian Camorra, it was the Campanians who ended up coming out with the short end of the stick. But they had also garnered something of a reprieve. The Capo di Capi, or the boss of the bosses, of the Sicilians, Salvatore Toto d'Aquila, had taken many of them under his wing to swell his ranks, and by doing so, extend his operating arm throughout the Mid-Atlantic states, New England, and into the Midwest. In fact, in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, they were holding their own against Sicilians and Irish. However, that, along with Toto's breakaway from the Morello Terranova family, and by many believing he assisted the Camorra in the killing of a made man in Nicolo Terranova during the Mafia Camorra War, who was heading that family, had strained his ability to influence many of the Sicilian factions, whose rules were extremely enforced and not for non-Sicilian participants. Most of them paid him his complimentary dues and went to him for settling minor disputes, but he was not truly trusted and not completely feared. In addition, the United States is a massive country, so by his heavy-handed tactics in his quest for power and respect, this had restricted his ability to enforce his own influence throughout the country. Another issue at hand that, in which he had no control over, and caused him to lose a great deal of respect, was the fact that he couldn't stop the Williamsburg crew, who were from Castel of Mare de Golfo, from seeking out and killing other Sicilians who were of the Bucciolato clan or strongly associated with them. This was a blood feud, and as far as they were concerned, Toto better be the boss who knew his place. Granted, they had the consummate politician and Niccolo Shiro placating him as he was the boss of the Williamsburg crew. But what did Toto want him to do? They were murdering each other back home and here. Did the big boss really want to interfere with the good killers? Maybe try and have a sit down with an enraged Vito Bonventre? So he was in something of a quandary when all he wanted to do was maintain his authority and peace. Now at this point in America, some of the populaces were well settled, others divvied up and others being hotly contested for power. So we're going to do a quick overview of where things were fine or either being vied for. 
Charles Matranga of New Orleans, who had defeated the first established mafia family in America, the Provenzanos, in the early 1890s, had expanded his empire to Los Angeles through his cousins, was sitting mighty pretty, but he was getting up there in age too. Through his control of two of the country's largest ports, he could easily import rum from Cuba, tequila from Mexico, and, being in the South, had ready access to low-tier American whiskeys. His power in the Deep South extended up to western Tennessee, through Mississippi, Alabama, and western Georgia, down to Galveston, Texas. He was one of the old-timers of Sicilian gangs and had kept faith with the Sicilian leanings. He paid, at best, lip service to the so-called boss of bosses in New York, Toto D'Aquila. Most of his orders came from either Sicily or, if needs be, the Federal Correctional Institute in Atlanta, where Giuseppe Morello was still doing time. Charles Matranga's fiefdom was unrivaled in its size, and in and around the Crescent City, he had absolutely no competition. In Cleveland, Big Joe Leonardo, his brothers and allies, the Perello brothers, had come seemingly out of nowhere and trumped the power of the well-established Mayfield Road mob in Cleveland's Little Italy district. There were other Italian-based gangs, too. The Sierra Gang, run by Angelo Sierra, ran a lovely front, I mean drugstore, but their money came from stealing trucks and automobiles. From the trucks, they would sell the merchandise out of the back, and then they had set up a racket to re-register and forge documents, creating new owners and resell the trucks and cars. The Mayfield Road Mob made most of its money from hijacking the various freight coming off the docks of Lake Erie, as well as extortion, gambling, and prostitution. With the sudden ascension of Big Joe Leonardo and his backing from Toto D'Aquila, Cleveland was fairly peaceful compared to other territories as Prohibition began. Kansas City gangsters were different in many respects. The face of the operation was an American-born John Lazio, though his draft card said Lazia. He and the D.G. Ovani brothers, Joseph and Peter, handled the day-to-day -day operations involving gambling, strong arm, hijacking, and prostitution. It was a stable organization, but only because they weren't in charge. When Lazio had gotten himself arrested for a botched armed robbery, the judge gave him the option, go to prison or join the army and go off to war. Lazio agreed to the terms of joining the army. He then turned right around and fled into the arms of Tom Pendergast. Pendergast was the de facto head of the Democratic Party for Kansas City and the chairman for the Jackson County Democratic Party. Oh, there's a fucking surprise. Pendergast, never passing up a good opportunity, took Lazio under his umbrella and had his sentence fixed over the decision of the judge, who wanted to keep being a judge, so didn't complain. Pendergast openly worked with these gangsters, and no one said a damn word. He also helped focus their efforts for the upcoming opportunity that Prohibition presented. Kansas City didn't have the squabbles and potential for infighting that other territories would have because all rule came from one man who was both a politician and a gangster. Even the Irish tiptoed around Big Tom. By the way, if you're interested in a very in-depth look at the underworld history of organized crime in Kansas City, we here at the History of Organized Crime suggest you check out Gary Jenkins' podcast, Gangland Wire. Tell him the Father sent you. In Boston, Niccolo Shiro of the Castellamare crew from Williamsburg had sent one of his own, Gaspare Messina, to get it organized. Granted that South Boston was way too much of the Wild West, 
completely overrun by bog-eyed Irish hicks. So he and his family settled in North Boston, where he opened a front, I mean bakery. It wasn't clear when exactly Messina took control of the local Sicilians, but by 1920, he was clearly the man running the show. The problem that Messino had was not only was his opposition Irishmen, but that only half of them were gangsters. The rest were police officers. That being said, Messina and his fledgling family had been relatively peaceful and ran a sharply organized crew. They rarely had internal turmoil, and when they did, it was handled quickly and quietly. His operation focused mostly on prostitution, low-end extortion, drugs, and most prominently, counterfeiting distribution. In the end, however, he didn't answer to Toto D'Aquila. He answered to Shiro. St. Louis was something of a war zone, where the Irish currently held power, while the Italians were fighting to garner some control. By 1917, Dominic Giambroni and his Brutal Street Gang, or the Green Ones, had become established. Giambroni had had to take power after the former captain, Gaetano Viviano, had been deported. There was infighting for control, but by 1917, Giambroni had come out on top after beheading latecomer Salvatore Leone. Giambroni ran a saloon on Brittle Street, which was the store for the gang. Later, in 1917, he had been fingered in for the brutal hacking death of another saloon owner, who was across the street and had been ordered to close the shop up by Giambroni. The owner, a Vincent Butera, had put his faith in the police department, which as far as Giambroni was concerned, broke the omerta, or the code of silence. Not that his gang was the only one in existence, though by 1920 things were looking up. Thomas Egan of Egan's Rats, the Irish gang leader, had been killed the year before, and his brother William had taken control of the gang, though he was an alderman for the 5th Ward. It was obvious that without Thomas Egan to lead his rats, that their ship was off course and several members of the rats were running wild or spending time with other gang members. It was only a matter of time until they would get their chance to shine, if they could get the other, smaller factions working together. In Chicago, there were three main groups as Prohibition began. Two of them were fairly peaceful at the onset. One was the Northside Gang, which was born out of the Market Street Gang. Their leader was Charles Dean O'Banion, also known as Dion or the Gimp, since one foot was shorter than the other, but never to his face. The Market Street Gang they belonged to were known pickpockets, thieves, and sluggers during elections. When the two main newspapers of Chicago, the Tribune and the Examiner, literally went to war, the Market Street Gang, led by Dean O'Banion, were hired to make sure stores and newspaper hawkers only carry the news for the Tribune. They were so ferocious that the owner of the Examiner offered them a much more lucrative deal to work for them. Dean had other talents, too. He was a gifted singer and sang at a parlor known as the Liberty Inn. It was here that he would perform during the evenings, which delighted the guest. He had a good eye for seeing who was the big spender and wore specialized jewelry. So, during his singing around the inn to the patrons, he would allegedly inform his people who the mark was and would sing to them while slipping a Mickey Finn into their drinks. His pals would follow the mark and rob him outside or while in the bathroom. His three best friends and followers were Earl Jaime Weiss, Vincent the Schemer Drucci, and George Bugs Moran. To their south sat Big Jim Colissimo, who was pimp supreme of the Windy City and 
on a first-name basis with the First Ward Alderman. He had reached his pinnacle, satisfied in both politics and power, and had slowly let more and more of the day-to-day business fall on his now former nephew's work desk. His nephew was Johnny the Fox Torrio, and we've covered much of this information in episode 15, Saviors and Slavers. Big Jim had made two major mistakes in 1920. He had divorced Torrio's aunt, Victoria, much to the shame and ire of Torrio, because he had gotten the hot for some new lady named Dale Winters. Secondly, he was not letting Torrio or his bulldog, Al Capone, get the family into the bootlegging business, though everyone else was gearing up for it. As far as Big Jim was concerned, they were making enough money on whores, city contracts, and the white slave trade. Why bother getting the federal government upset? These would prove to be fatal mistakes. On the more unsettled west side in Chicago's Little Italy was Anthony D'Andrea, who was similar to Pendergast of Kansas City. He was both a gangster and a politician, though he didn't have near the absolute power of the latter. He was a Chicago boss in the Union Siciliana, which was an organization that worked to keep Sicilians in line for voting. This was a nationwide organization within the Democratic Party apparatus whose sole purpose was to keep the Sicilian voters in line with party thinking. In addition, he was a defrocked priest, which didn't sit well with some of his very Catholic constituents. Plus, he'd done over a year in jail for counterfeiting. But Anthony D'Andrea did not let his history slow him down in the political arena. He worked to garner one of the two alderman seats in the 19th War, also known as the Bloody 19th. It became a power struggle with the popular senior alderman, John Powers, a popular Irishman, saloon keeper, gang leader, and one of the city's most corrupt officials. Much like Michael Hinkydink Kenna and John Laughlin, the Lords of the Levy and the Aldermans of the First Ward, he made sure to get a cut of the action and was easily bought off. Powers was a populist who handed out free turkeys to his constituents during the holidays, but he didn't want DeAndrea to share power with. This led to an all-out battle in the Bloody 19th called the Alderman's War. Powers and his massive arsenal versus DeAndrea and the Jenna Gang. Multiple elections, multiple attacks, and murders would take place for this political battle that had begun in 1916 and was still in high form. All right, line them up. It's election day. DeAndrea, too, was involved in all the illicit trades as other gangsters, but he didn't do the day-to-day running of the gang. Instead, he employed six brothers known as the Jennas to keep the affairs straight and handle any of the problems. They were allies of the Southside gang, more Torrio than Big Jim, though to be fair, DeAndrea's main contact with Big Jim Calissimo was Union Siciliana President Mike Merlo. So Chicago was peaceful in all but the West Side, but that too would change soon. This brings us to Detroit. Now this is the place that I was telling you about. It's real fucked up. Unlike other areas, Detroit had been in battle mode for a decade before Prohibition. For the first part of the 20th century, the city had been ruled by the Adamo brothers, Vito and Sam. It was when the three brothers, the Giannolas, who were from Terracini, Sicily, which is wedged between Palermo and Castellamare de Golfo, that violence erupted. You see, the Giannolas ran a store and fenced stolen goods in an area south of Detroit called Wyandotte. One of the problems was there was pressure from the Adamo faction to pay a monthly fee and get a cut of the side action from the Giannola brothers. 
Multiple shakedowns led to a lashing out at the Adamas and their friends in the White Hand Society. From 1912 to the end of 1913, multiple murders of ranking associates in both groups kept racking up. By August, Vito Adamo and two others were dealing with the fallout of the murder of a Gianolo associate in the form of a trial, and the war seemingly cooled down. While the trial was going on, Antonino Gianola had a hit put out on him, and it failed. This lit a fire under the three brothers, and by November, their luck turned, and they were able to take out the two Adamo brothers. As that war ended, peace replaced gangland violence for a short time. The Gianolas controlled vast swaths of local Detroit Italian neighborhoods, using people such as Bloody John Vitale, who ran his own outfit, Joseph Zarelli, and William Blackbill Tocco. If anything, the Gianola brothers represented the criminal side of things. Their partner, John Vitale, controlled the more legitimate businesses. In 1918, there was a disagreement with the Gianola Vitale buffer over actual earnings, and Antonino Gianola had the man eliminated though he was a man of means and associates. Vitale felt this was a move by the Gianola brothers to make a move on his import-export business, just as word of prohibition was announced federally, and there was big money to be made. Just to clarify, many Midwestern states already had state laws that excluded the sale and distribution of alcohol. Michigan's was started in 1917. Vitale made a break from the Gianola brothers and put together a gang of his own so no money was coming from that sector for the biggest family in Detroit. When winter appeared in 1918 and Vitali's trucks were doing quick drives over the bridge into Ontario to pick up booze shipments, they would return by driving over the iced over Detroit River so the cops couldn't chase them very effectively, unless they broke through the ice. While the Gianolas had experienced muscle, Vitali was not unwilling to fight and in January of 1919, they struck the first heavy blow of the war when they had Antonino Gianola killed by his adopted son and confidant while attending a wake. This left Gaetano and Salvatore Sam Gianola in charge. While Sam was younger, he was also a feared killer and a hothead. The Vitali faction attempted a hit on Sam a month later, since they didn't fear the elder brother, but it failed and enraged Sam Gianola even further. Bloody John Vitale was arrested and being held in Wayne County Jail where Sam's spies reported that he had regular visitors, including Vitale's son, Joseph. Sam and his crew arrived as the three known men exited and they opened fire, killing one, injuring Joe Vitale, as well as one of their own being injured in return fire. The whole city and county was on edge over this war taking place even at a jail. By the summer, however, Sam Gianola had lost two of his most trusted friends and advisors, as well as his two sons, in a house fire. The wind was lost in his sail, and he arranged to sit down with John Vitale in hopes of finding a peace that was equitable. By the end of summer, an agreement was reached, with Vitale gaining the greater share, but peace was made and sealed in blood. In October of 1919, Gaetano Gianola was burying his second brother and family boss, Sam, after he was gunned down as he was leaving a bank. He was hit with over 20 bullets as he fell back into the financial institution. Though the prime suspect, John Vitale, was in a meeting with his attorney at that very moment, so he allayed immediate suspicion by the authorities. But old school gangsters know that trick too, and they also recognize that Vitale had broken an official peace. By prohibition start, Vitale was living on borrowed time. In New York, Toto was the man. Since the end of the Mafia Camorra War, 
His word carried weight, particularly in Brooklyn and the Bronx. He had an ardent base of both Sicilians and Campanians, who backed him and he paid them well. But while he did get respect to his face from other gang leaders, those being Vincenzo Terranova, Joe Mazzaria, Gaetano Riena, and Nicolo Shiro, it was believed that their respect was merely one of placating him until things could get turned around. His spies informed him that he was not truly respected, but they also let him know that the police and politicians were upset over the war, and now there was a spate of murders that kept coming back to the doorstep in Williamsburg, which was upsetting them as well. Toto needed time to consolidate his power, so he was the man they all respected. But there was a timetable, too because he knew that by 1920, not only would Prohibition be in full swing, but that the first boss of bosses would be out of prison and returning to New York, and Toto only had the backing from the Palermo wing of the Sicilian Mafia. Luckily, Toto had garnered power in the Midwest by snagging Cleveland head Joe Leonardo. Toto knew all the youngsters in the Five Points who could be bought or brought on board. His voice reached to not only Detroit and Chicago, but to the smaller factions in Toledo, Ohio, Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, and Rochester, New York. Toto knew that everyone was gearing up for Prohibition, including himself, but he also knew they'd have to pay to operate. In our next episode, Giuseppe Morello returns, and a crazed wolf is not far behind him. It is at this moment in time that Toto D'Aquila will make a move to cement his standing as the boss of bosses, or look for a quick exit, lest he fade away. Don't forget to go to thehartmancompany.com and use the code word GANGSTER to garner 10% off your purchase. You can find us at the History of Organized Crime on Facebook. You can find our show on SoundCloud or iTunes. Please leave us a review. You can also contact us at michaelvista1970 at yahoo.com. And remember, organized crime is only a crime because the government hates competition. 